Hello and welcome to the War Daddy Podcast, where we shed a new light on battlefields of the past. Glad you're back. I'm your host, Will Crush, and if you're joining me for this second episode, I definitely appreciate you continuing on this journey and experiment with me. Uh, if you missed the pilot, I recommend you going back and checking it out just so you know what you're getting yourself into. But if you feel like jumping in straight away, well, to you I say, bonsai. At the back end of the pilot episode, I went into a little bit of detail about myself, but I realize now that I neglected to mention how this podcast got its name. So, War Daddy isn't actually some kinky gay fight club thing. Well, I mean, it probably is, depending on what circles you run in, to each their own. But for our purposes, War Daddy is the nickname of one of the greatest American warriors of all time. If you've seen the film Fury, Brad Pitt and his very memorable haircut actually do a pretty good job of playing the character somewhat based on the real-life hero Lafayette Poole. Poole was the finest American tank ace of World War II and a legendary overachiever. Uh, His numbers are just staggering. He's credited with a dozen tank kills, and that's going up against some of the most formidable German armor ever put into the field, including the dreaded King Tiger, and all this while rolling with the far less armored and far less gunned Sherman M4. In addition to tanks, he also smoked something like 250 armored vehicles and killed around 1,000 Germans and captured another 250. This original Deadpool, get it, Lafayette Pool, made Nazis dead, Deadpool, okay, I'll stop. Anyway, he had three tanks shot out from under him while smashing through the Ziegfeld line and the back nine of World War II. Not the type of fella to fade out, his final action came at the hands of a well-laid tank ambush. Two of his longtime crew members were killed in the fight, and although he did survive, his legs were badly mangled, one of which had to be amputated above the knee. So, in just a few short months, this amateur boxer from Texas managed to cut a bloody gash through the enemy and left it all on the field, including one of his legs. It's a reminder to me, albeit a morbid one, that no matter how much time you're allotted on this earth, no matter the odds you're up against, with enough guts, it's always possible to leave your mark and maybe even make history in the process. So, it is for Chief Warrant Officer 2nd Class Lafayette G. Poole, a goddamn American war hero, that this podcast is so named. Now, let's get to it. Between the time when the Red Army swallowed the Reichstag and the Americans crossed the Pacific with their war machine, there was a battle undreamed of. And unto this, the suicide battleship Yamato, doomed to be the final sacrifice to a dying empire. A vain, glorious tribute to the ancient land of the rising sun. It is I, War Daddy, who now tells thee of this saga. Let me tell you of the final gust of the divine wind. I just, I just couldn't resist. I'm sorry. Uh, that's obviously the opening prologue from Conan, the Riddle of Steel. Or no, it's uh, Thor's Anvil. What is it? The uh, Anvil of Krom. Um, I felt like framing our story this way would be just a fun way to set the mood. Because uh, last time we started off by exploring the Battle of Minotogawa from the 1200s. 
Kunsonoki Masashige's epically doomed bonsai charge that inspired generations of Japanese warriors to extreme devotion to their emperor. Now, we jump ahead a few hundred years to 1945, but somehow this story still feels like something ancient and epic, no matter how modern and terrible it really was. You can almost hear that last echoing war cry of those ancient samurai. So here we are in the final days of World War II, but it is paramount to keep in mind that nobody knew this. This was like an age unto itself, like a small microcosm in which humans were capable of things that are just hard to fathom. The Japanese, with their navy and air force shattered, hold out in a series of bloody, grinding last stands, marooned on besieged islands like Saipan and Iwo Jima. The Allied forces are now poised to invade Japanese home soil for the first time, and in a desperate attempt to thwart the invasion, the Japanese launched their first full-scale kamikaze attacks. But swarms of death-bound zeros would not be the only Japanese warriors who believed that life through death was their destiny. With their emperor calling for the military to inspire a nation to fight to the last man, woman, and child, enter the biggest battleship ever built, the Yamato. For a long, long time, the winning maxim for naval warfare was the most biggest guns rules. In the build-up to World War I, ship designers created gigantic behemoths, the Dreadnought-class battleship, in this space race of its time. Nations pumped vast amounts of treasure and steel into creating these technologically cutting-edge superweapons. In this age of brinksmanship, floating platforms for massive cannons were built to slug it out on the high seas. But even after the First World War, the strategy for implementing these monsters had not advanced that far past the techniques developed for the ship of the line and the man-of-war of Admiral Nelson's era. These were battle wagons, brawlers with biceps built to bring the pain. And the battleship Yamato was queen of them all. She goes down in history as the biggest battleship of all time. It was Japan's secret weapon, built to ensure complete dominance over the Pacific. Japan, in fact, thrusted herself onto the world stage as a military power by besting the Russians in the short Russo-Japanese War of 1905, and we'll get into that a little bit later down the line. This tiny nation's stunning victory over the Russians set the stage for their martial ambitions and instilled a spirit of warrior pride in the budding Japanese Imperial Navy. Design work for the Yamato-class battleship began in 1934 under extreme secrecy. Fitted with nine gigantic 18.1-inch guns, she could send a one-and-a-half-ton projectile 22 miles. The blast from these things was so fierce that they had to shift where the anti-aircraft guns would sit because gunners would be scorched, their clothes blown off their backs, and knocked unconscious in the blast. To compare, the New Mexico-class battleship of the 1915 vintage made up the backbone of the U.S. Navy leading up to World War II. Those had an armament of 12 14-inch guns. And in this case, four inches really does matter. This meant that the one-on-one -on -one battle that the designers of the Yamato were fantasizing about, well, the Yamato could obliterate anything in the water before the opposing battleship could even get in range. It wouldn't be until 1942 that the Iowa-class battleships were launched in order to compete, but those still only had 16-inch guns. At this stage, with range being the key factor, the Yamato was made to land bigger punches before her prey could ever hit back. These guns were also fitted to fire these new Sanshiki beehive shells. To defend against air assault, these shells were encased in layers of 20mm cannon rounds, acting in essence like flak on steroids. 
These, theoretically, would be capable of blasting whole squadrons of planes out of the sky. If only they knew what kind of swarm the Americans would eventually be able to put into the air. Yamato was protected by the thickest and heaviest armor ever installed on a warship. A 16-inch armored belt around the hull to fend off torpedoes, her deck was designed to risk a 2,500-pound armor-piercing bomb dropped from 10,000 feet. The Japanese spent the massive sum of $10 million at the time to expand the sheet metal plate industry in order to make this possible. She displaced over 63,000 tons of water. The biggest U.S. ships at the time were displacing around 34,000. The ship-to-ship heavyweight showdown that Yamato was designed for was a rare but thrilling event. In one of the best examples, the Nazi super battleship, the Bismarck, and her epic duel with the HMS Hood was over in just eight minutes of action. After a short chase and the equivalent of two prize fighters standing toe-to-toe and landing haymakers on each other's jaws, the Hood erupted into flame and disappeared under the black waters of the Denmark Strait. Till that point, the pride of the Royal Navy, the mighty Hood, had reigned as the biggest and most powerful battleship for over 20 years, She developed an aura of invincibility, but when the Bismarck pierced her armor, landing shells in her magazine, she was blasted sky-high and sunk within just three minutes, taking all but three of her crew of 1,400 men down with her. What the Bismarck hit her with was just 15-inch guns. That's just half the armor-piercing capability that the Yamato's 18-inch fuck-you tubes could deal. Yamato did have a sister, her fate would prove to be bitter foreshadowing for what the vengeful American horde would have in store. Her name was Musashi. In the last episode, I elaborated a bit on how the names of these flagships spoke to the soul of the proud warrior nation of Japan. Yamato is the ancient mythical name of the Japanese people. It was a symbol. They were in essence staking the invincibility of their collective identity on the fate of this battleship. Japan in the 1500s was a time of shoguns, warring feudal armies, wandering ronin samurai, and duels to the death in the quest of honor and prestige. It was in this bloody period, akin to Arthurian knights meets the Wild West, that a great warrior would emerge, Miyamoto Musashi. Legends tell us that Musashi won his first duel at the age of 13, and would go on to invent and perfect a never-before-seen style of duel-wielding katanas. After winning a record 61 dueling victories, founding multiple schools of swordsmanship, and attaining a kind of sainthood as a Buddhist monk, he was revered as the penultimate swordsman, at the level of Kunsunoki Masashige, in fact. By the 1930s, his famous life was novelized into a hugely popular, serialized newspaper comic, thus injecting this Bushido hero into the minds and hearts of every Japanese boy. The now-classic epic series of novels by Iji Yoki Yoshi, <laughs> Yoshikawa, you know, I, the Japanese words, they're so pretty, but they're so hard to say. All right, one more time. <laughs> Eji Yoshikawa, yes. Well, he's the author, anyway. <clears throat> His books are a fantastic and worthy investment of your time. I personally found myself on a strict diet of ramen and sake for the long winter in which it took me to get through all of them, but it was definitely worth the read. The serialization was a huge factor in instilling the martial spirit into pop culture. The themes of justice by katana and deification through glorious combat shaped their young worldviews. When a super battleship was christened with the name of this legendary warrior, it would be this same generation who were weaned on tales of Musashi's samurai exploits that leaped to the call to man her guns. As imposing as she was, the Yamato was not without her flaws. 
The extreme secrecy under which she was built meant she didn't have the benefit of other, more experienced designers. Having to move the AA guns in order to save the crew from being vaporized in her muzzle flash meant they'd be nested in tightly packed groups. This meant a single well-placed aerial bomb could make for a very messy situation, as we'll see. The incredibly thick armor plate also lacked flexibility, making near misses from bombs and torpedoes do some serious structural damage, even if it wasn't a direct hit. Nonetheless, she inspired endless national pride and was the culmination of the battleship era, but also its swan song. In the ship-to-ship Nelsonian deathmatch that she was designed for, Yamato was the true juggernaut, but tragically, her role as the battle axe of the Imperial Japanese Navy would be shattered just nine days before her deployment. With the massively successful ship-borne surprise aerial attacks on Pearl Harbor, she was effectively rendered obsolete. Her status as the backbone of naval warfare was destroyed, thus ushering in the fleet carriers and their aircraft as the dominant instrument of the Pacific War. In the build-up to the Second World War, the relatively tiny Japanese Navy had risen to be the third most powerful navy in the world. After dumping in vast amounts of resources, by 39 they had completed 10 aircraft carriers and would produce a total of 15. This included the Shokaku class, the most modern and largest of its time. Capable of carrying over 70 planes, these would be the launch pad for the Pearl Harbor attacks. The Shokaku class would only be surpassed by the American Essex class in later stages of the war. To put this in perspective, at the time, the U.S. had just seven of the smaller Independence-class carriers in total, and these carried just about 20 aircraft, and only three of these were in the Pacific. The British also had a handful of similar carriers, but just one of these guys was all by its lonesome out in the Indian Ocean. The carrier strategy that the Americans would later perfect and become world-famous for was in fact a Japanese invention. Where Rommel and the Nazis had the Blitzkrieg, the Japanese had carrier-borne naval air power. And this was kicked into overdrive by a name that might ring familiar, one that has gone, well, down in infamy, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. When Yamamoto took over, the Japanese Navy went from a relatively defensive posture to one of pure aggression. The Japanese always knew that their conquests in the Pacific would first put them up against the aging British Empire, then eventually lead to a showdown with the Americans. It was understood that the Japanese would never be able to compete with the Americans at a pure military production level, so their original thought was to do their business in the Pacific, conquer whatever they could, but try to stave off a direct American entanglement while they snap up as much real estate as possible. Then, when they absolutely had to dance with the Americans, wage a defensive, attritional war on their own turf, one that plays to their strengths. They were the premier naval air power in the world. Let the ill-equipped Americans have to declare war, then force them to slog it out over the vast Pacific, holding them off with superior aircraft and aircraft carriers, whittle them down into something close to war material parity in an unpopular war. Then, finally, lure them into a decisive battle where the super battleships like Yamato and Musashi could just plain lay the smack down. In hindsight, this strategy seems pretty good. Especially the part about being an unpopular war. Force the U.S. to declare war at a time when the world is on fire. They're still in the throes of a depression, and Asia is a damn far ways off from Kansas. Without that revenge feature that would fuel such rabid motivation, you could see how the U.S., still not even committed to helping the Brits stave off Hitler, might not have had the will to get into a far-flung Pacific war over territory, let alone have the stones to see it through all the way. 
Now, I'd love to say something like, Yamato was the pinnacle of modern samurai, a man with bonsai in his blood. But as good as that is for the image of the villain who planned and prosecuted the dastardly sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, that's really just not the case. Yamamoto was against all of the major offensive actions of the Japanese militarists who were taking power in the 30s and 40s. This included the invasion of Manchuria and China. He was also staunchly against the Rome-Berlin-Tokyo Tripatriot Act, that collaboration of fascists. He was so much against it that he was constantly receiving death threats from Japanese nationalists. He had spent time in America, even studied at Harvard. He spoke English. He was something of a naval diplomat. His opposition to war with America made it seem like his career was over. This was a time when Japan was yearning for its moment. They believed it was time that their sun rose above the world stage. Much like how the fervent Nazis believed in their own supremacy, drunk on the desire to ascend to the throne and take what was righteously theirs, Imperial Japan had this same hunger for domination. Although Yamamoto was unpopular politically, he was hugely respected by the officers and the men of the navy. That and his close relationship with the Imperial family is probably what preserved him as the commander-in-chief of the combined fleet. His statement about war with the U.S. went like this, quote, Should hostilities break out between Japan and the U.S., it would not be enough to take Guam and the Philippines, nor even Hawaii and San Francisco. To make victory certain, we would have to march into Washington and dictate the terms of peace in the White House. I wonder if our politicians have the confidence as to the final outcome and are prepared to make the necessary sacrifices. Now, he's clearly saying this as a warning, meant to check the bravado of the war-hungry nationalists, and since they could neither get rid of him or bring him around to their cause, they decided to subvert him. They printed his words, just leaving out that last really important sentence— the, I wonder if our politicians have the confidence as to the final outcome and are prepared to make the necessary sacrifices part. So, instead of a warning to the war hawks, trying to make brutally clear what it would take to beat the U.S. and how insane that would actually be, it served to incite more vainglorious hopes of fantastic Japanese conquest. Yamamoto found himself in a situation that, again, has echoes of Kunsonoki Masashige. It's a theme that will haunt every one of these ill-advised, honor-bound attacks. So, if it is his duty to fight and win this coming war with America, he was going to do it his own way. He himself had cultivated and created the best naval air power in the world, and he knew that at this moment the Americans were weak and totally unsuspecting. With naval and air supremacy at his fingertips, he believed that with a sudden, shocking, deep thrust into the heart of the U.S. Navy— he could crush their morale, cripple their responsive power, and maybe just put them down for good, or at least get some kind of peace agreement on the table. Current Japanese military hierarchy was completely opposed to this plan, but Yamamoto threatened to resign if they didn't adapt his new aggressive posture. It's probably due to his commanding respect of the Navy that they viewed him as too valuable to lose, and he got his way. But I can't help but feel that Yamamoto's unwavering commitment to a shocking and brutally decisive victory must have stirred something in their nationalistic souls, something clearly irresistible. Yamamoto created the Kido Butai, the first Japanese carrier task force. Consisting of all seven of Japan's fleet carriers, with 474 aircraft, it was the largest and most powerful concentration of naval aviation in the world. 
This concept was new, audacious, technologically ambitious, and wholly Japanese. Had Yamamoto not shunned the last generation's superweapon, the gargantuan battleships, the Pacific War could very well have played out in a barrage of Nelsonian ship-to-ship haymakers of yesteryear. Yamamoto, in essence, changed the rules of naval warfare, making it a game that only he was equipped to play, and in turn, ushering in this new era of naval air power. And it was with this new, totally modern instrument, Yamamoto plunged his blade into the American heart. Now, we all know Yamamoto's famous words following the successful Pearl Harbor attack. I fear that all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Nonetheless, in 1941, Yamamoto had the tools and the tactics and was putting them to work with fearsome results. So, let's talk about these tools. The Japanese Gaiora Rai, or however the hell you're supposed to say that, <laughs> literally translates to thunderfish. These were the feared marine torpedoes, the greatest of all of which was the Japanese Type 93 Long Lance. It would be a cut-down aerial version with wooden blocks mounted on the fins for buoyancy that were used to such stunning effect at Pearl Harbor, but even those packed serious punch, especially when compared to the U.S.'s inferior Mark 13s. The Long Lance had double the warhead, double the range, and ran twice as fast, allowing for less lead time and better accuracy. The legacy of the American Mark 13 torpedo is one of the biggest scandals of naval history. It had an abysmal 70% failure rate up until upgrades in 1943, but even those never touched the Long Lance. Due to Depression-era frugality in testing, the U.S. just didn't want to spend money on blowing up these expensive torpedoes. They relied on purely mathematical figures, which is just not a great way to test ordnance. The Mark 13 tended to run about 10 feet deeper than it was supposed to, many times slipping beneath the target's hull. The exploder either triggered early or not at all, nothing worse than the submarine crew straining to listen in painful anticipation, dying to hear that ping of the torpedo hitting home, but then silence rather than the boom of the warhead's explosion. And comically worst of all, due to a faulty gyro angler, these torpedoes could run in a circle if they didn't hit their target, creating a very dangerous game of return to sender. Something like a nautical exploding boomerang from hell. For the aerial version of these shitty torpedoes, you needed a low and slow approach in order to make sure the payload would run hot and true. This made U.S. torpedo bombers early in the war especially easy targets. The ugly fate of the antiquated Douglas Devastators used by the U.S. at the Battle of Midway was a prime example. All but six of the 50 bombers sent into action were shot out of the sky, and they put up a goose egg as far as torpedo hits. Probably the most glaring example was when the submarine USS Tunney caught the mighty Musashi, as we've been speaking about, in her gun sights. Unseen and undetected, she had her dead to rights and fired six torpedoes at the sitting duck target, but just one struck home. That one hit caught Musashi just below her reinforced anti-torpedo belt and was enough to force her home for repairs. One out of six is just hard to swallow. Just one more hit could have been enough to send Musashi to the bottom, which would have been a crushing, humiliating blow to the Japanese Navy. Tunney's crew would blame the cursed, hated, unreliable Mark 13 for robbing them of their chance at the Hall of Fame. But the most instrumental piece of equipment that outclassed anything the Americans had, and really any Air Force at the time, was the dreaded Japanese Zero. The Mitsubishi A6M Type Zero, aka Zeke, 
to U.S. spotters, was lighter, faster, absurdly maneuverable, could stay up longer, had vastly more range, better firepower, better climb. She was an acrobatic nightmare for American pilots. It was these babies that rained hell on Pearl Harbor and served as the backbone for the Japanese Air Force. Here's a quote from a British Royal Air Force captain. Our pilots are trained in methods that are excellent against German or Italian equipment, but it's damn suicide against that bloody acrobatic zero. In the classic slow-speed, turning dogfight, Zeke had no equal. Before 1943, the Zero had a 12-to-1 kill ratio. U.S. fighters had to resort to a tactic they dubbed Boom and Zoom. First, they'd need to get a jump on a Zero, which in itself was difficult, then dive straight down for it, blasting away from above, and then get the hell out of there. The Zero's only real weakness was her fragility, but you really only had one chance with this particular tactic. If you didn't kill it in what was essentially a dive-bombing run, you were in deep shit. The other tactic that won some early successes was the Thatch Weave, named for pilot Jimmy Thatch. Jimmy was a renowned P-40 pilot, and his strategy was to fly side-by-side side with a wingman, letting a Zero take the bait and get behind. He and his buddy would count down, then at the critical moment they would X in unison, without smashing into each other. The Zero would naturally pick one of the targets and bank with it, leaving the other man free to then take down the Zero and save his buddy. But he'd have to be awful quick about it because one did not last long in the sky with a Zero on his tail. There's actually a halfway decent portrayal of this in Jerry Bruckheimer's Pearl Harbor. Cute little Josh Hartnett and his unibrow managed to save shitty Batman Ben Affleck with the old thatch weave tactic. Problem was, you needed a buddy to pull this off. One-on-one, -on -one, U.S. fighters were simply outmatched but it wouldn't stay that way forever. In those infamous and quite accurate words of Admiral Yamamoto, the attack on Pearl Harbor did in fact awake the sleeping giant. But at this stage in 1941, the American military was still very much asleep. They had watched Europe tear itself apart the last time around. Even the relatively small losses they incurred in helping tip the scales at the back nine of the Great War, those left a deep scar on the American collective memory. The U.S. had been doing everything they could to stay out of direct involvement in this new conflict, and when they were finally forced to fight, they were still very much the new kids on the block. Certainly miles and miles away from the superpower she was destined to become. Europe had been at war since 39. Their military apparatuses had been up and running for years, especially the Nazi war machine, which was purring like a well-oiled kitten of death, or death kitten. I should really stop mixing these analogies. Anyway, the Imperial Japanese military was very similarly ripping full steam ahead. The brutal slaughter of China acted as a gory appetizer as it conquered its way across the vast South Pacific, even giving the vaunted British army a bloody good spanking in the stunning and humiliating victories at Singapore and Hong Kong. It was purely lucky geography that kept the U.S. at a near par with the European militaries, solely because they weren't subjected to the same kind of carnage and destruction. And yet she still had a lot of catching up to do, both technologically and militarily. But as the wheels got turning, the evolution of U.S. air power would become some of the best proof of America's slow but steady march toward dominance. The success of this brand new seaborne air attack at Pearl Harbor made it clear that naval warfare had been changed irrevocably. The star of this new show would be carrier-based aircraft, namely the torpedo bomber, which was a category of weapon that the U.S. was sorely lacking in. The Battle of Midway, fought just six months after Pearl Harbor, 
Although a stunning turning point victory for the U.S., it did not come without its price tag. Now, Midway is really a topic unto itself, but I'll keep it real brief for the moment. One thing that was laid bare was that without upgrades to their air fleet, victory on this stage would be really hard to replicate. The mainstay of the U.S. torpedo bomber squads, those Douglas Devastators we spoke about earlier, they were actually obsolete before Pearl Harbor, and they got their asses kicked at Midway. As mentioned, they were easy pickings for the Zero, and those shitty Mark 13 torpedoes only exasperated things. It was now time for the real war winner to take over, American industry. In just a matter of months, the vast, yet untapped engines of the American workforce, the factories, the labor, it was all converted into a war material-making powerhouse. FDR set up huge agencies like the War Production Board and the Office of War Mobilization. He decreed, quote, Powerful enemies must not only be outfought, but outproduced. And we must outproduce them overwhelmingly, so that there can be no question of our ability to provide a crushing superiority of equipment in any theater of the World War. Wow, I nearly forgot how nice it is to hear a president speak in something close to a full sentence. Anyway, with these seemingly unlimited resources, the U.S. would never want for material again. America would launch more vessels in 1941 alone than Japan did in the entire war. Chrysler now made bomb fuselages. Ford Motor Company began a 24-hour production day, churning out the B-24 Liberator, with one of these huge long-range bombers coming off the assembly line every 63 minutes. The American aeronautic industry got a hell of a kickstart and began inventing new ways to win the war in the air. The first replacement would be the Grumman Helldiver. Now, these were universally hated dive bombers, renowned for their shit-handling, nicknamed son-of-a-bitch second-class, but it was definitely a step in the right direction, really just an appetizer. One of the first real game-changers was also by Grumman, the Avenger. Built to live on carriers, these had fold-up wings to save space, and they could carry either one aerial torpedo or a set of four 500-pound bombs. The pilot plus a co-pilot slash bombardier kept her airborne, being that she was known to fly like a truck, and a gunner in the back ball turret kept bogeys off her tail with a 50 cal. Although perhaps lacking in grace, the most valuable aspect of these next-generation American aircrafts was legendary durability. Solid, beefy, heavy, these were rugged, well-made machines. There are tales of Zeros pouring hundreds of rounds of 7.62 or even 20mm cannon into these babies, and the things would still manage to make it home. It would be one of these Avengers that George H.W. Bush actually piloted. At just 19 years old at the time, he was actually the youngest Navy pilot ever given wings. He would go on to fly 58 combat missions, and only shot down twice. The second time he got shot down, he got peppered good by some shipborne anti-aircraft, and although on fire, he managed to drop his payload and sink a small cruiser before he and his crew bailed out. He would be the only survivor. About the incident, he said, quote, People talk about, wow, you're a hero. Well, there's nothing heroic about getting shot down. I still wonder why I was spared when two of my friends in the plane with me were killed. I don't know the answer. H.W. won the Distinguished Flying Cross for this action. He would continue his career flying missions over Wake Island, the Marianas, and Guam, some of the biggest and most decisive battles in the Pacific, mostly behind the stick of the Grumman Avenger. To directly counter the dreaded Zero, Grumman introduced a series of cats. First, the Wildcat, which would soon be joined by her even rougher and tougher sister, the Hellcat. 
these fighters were heavy, rugged, and mean. It was the addition of 50 cal machine guns as well as 20mm cannons that would go a long way to leveling the playing field and allowing the cats to compete with the Zero. With just enough ammo for a grand total of a 30-second trigger pull, it was a good thing that a well-aimed 3-second burst could usually shred a Zero. Although still faster and more agile, the Zero was never prized for her durability. She was extremely light on armor and crucially lacked a self-sealing fuel tank. After downing, capturing, and then studying the Zero, American designers took this flaw into account and made sure every fifth round coming out of a Hellcat was incendiary. The explosive combination of fire plus fuel would make it easy to turn their enemies into a flying torch real quick. These tough, ugly, squatty little beasts not only packed a serious punch, but they could take one hell of a beating. So much so that these cats would often basically just crash land on the deck of their carrier, so bashed up in Swiss cheese from cannon fire, the crews would put out the flames, saw out the pilot, and kick the chewed-up wreck overboard. That was the true beauty of this new generation of naval aircraft. They would take the beating, but the pilot would survive to fly and fight again, with more invaluable experience. With the full weight of American industry churning out a basically unlimited supply of replacements, they could afford to run through material. Then came the Corsair. Good old whistling death so named for the unforgettable sound she made while dive-bombing. You hear that? That sound became all too familiar to the unlucky fellas caught in her crosshairs. She became the true queen of the Pacific skies, and the most formidable fighter the Japanese pilots would ever face. The F-4U Corsair was a real leap in aviation technology, the first U.S. fighter to crack 450 miles an hour with a massive propeller so big they had to implement those telltale reverse gull wings so the blades didn't bite into the carrier deck. Had she been deployed in the European theater, she would have hung with and even bested the Mustang and the Spitfire. But what put her on the next level was the ability to handle the rough conditions of oceanic warfare. Short runways, hard landings, corrosive sea salt and rough weather, like all the U.S. Pacific fighters... She was a tough, rugged machine. By 44, she was even loaded up with some of the first air-mounted rockets. They were calling them Tiny Tim rockets at the time, and they proved very useful in air-to-ground attacks on tanks and bunkers, and they paired remarkably well with the Corsair's hellish dive-bomb whistle. Most importantly, what the Corsair made possible was the Allied strategy of the defensive ring. With the Corsair's great range and capability to stay in the air for a long, long time, they provided the best way to keep Jap fighters and bombers and kamikazes from hitting U.S. ships. Kill them before they get close. And by war's end, Corsair pilots would earn an incredible 11 to 1 kill ratio. As interceptors, fighters, and escorts eventually serving well through the Korean War, in its time, the Corsair may just have been the best plane in the sky. As evidenced by the new naval air power, the United States Navy was quickly evolving into the most terrifying and impressive fighting force the world had ever seen. In just a few years after the first attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese were witnessing their enemy master the new type of warfare that they had invented, and now they had begun to see it unleashed on themselves. However, all these implements of winged death, although impressive, were nothing without a platform to launch them from. In previous iterations of naval doctrine and one still employed at this time, 
the battleship served as the backbone of naval warfare. But now she was finally being eclipsed by the new war winner, the aircraft carrier. With land-based takeoff not an option, carriers served to extend the range of attack in a way that changed naval warfare forever. In 1941, the U.S. birthed the first Essex-class aircraft carrier. This was a truly massive vessel, and if you happen to be in the New York City area and you've driven down the West Side Highway, you've probably seen one, the USS Intrepid. After you wrap up this podcast, I implore you to go visit the Intrepid, that very ship resting right next to Manhattan, she fought in the same battles that we're going to be talking about. Planes launched from her very deck hit the suicide battleship Yamato with bombs and torpedoes, leading to her ultimate demise. The Avenger that Bush piloted, they have an original one of those babies parked right where it would have been as if it was 1945. The Intrepid herself was hit by four direct kamikaze strikes. It's all right there, just sitting in the harbor, waiting for you to climb aboard. And climbing aboard is really the only way to truly understand the scale of these things. The Intrepid itself has a long and storied history. Uh, instrumental to victory in the Pacific, she continued on through the Korean War and Vietnam Wars, as well as NASA's Gemini space missions. But I'll let you dig into that on your own. I'll actually be recording the final installment of this podcast on that very carrier, trying to channel all that residual energy. So when you go for a visit, tell them that War Daddy sent you, and they'll point you to the exact spots that those four kamikazes made their terminal destinations. Or, alternately, they'll stare blankly at you, wondering what kind of kinky shit you and War Daddy are up to, but I guess that's, <laughs> that's on you. The Essex-class carrier was like a floating city, buzzing with activity. It was home to upwards of 3,000 men and could house over nearly 100 aircraft. The deck which served as a runway was nearly three football fields in length, and the U.S. would complete about 24 of these giants by war's end. The aircraft arrangement would be something like 25 Hellcats serving as fighter escorts and 25 Hell Divers capable of heavy bombing runs, then 30 Avengers for air-to-ship torpedo attack, and then another 30 or so Corsairs as interceptors in the defensive air screen or just straight-up attack planes. The carriers themselves were relatively lightly armored, relying on that Corsair air umbrella to preempt and defend against attack. But these Queen Bees did not travel without an entourage. The full complement comprised of numerous cruisers, destroyers, and battleships, which would all work in concert, part of a cohesive unit surrounding the carriers and their spawn of airborne death. And these little nuclei? They would attach to other carrier units, which would then attach to yet more carrier units, forming these huge networks of ships and aircraft known as a task force. Task Force 58 was the prime example. It would come to be known ominously as the fleet that came to stay and served as the main strike force for the U.S. Navy. Task Force 58 fielded 15 carriers, eight of which were the massive Essex class. In support were eight battleships, the original heavy hitters, along with 19 cruisers and 59 destroyers. And no matter what kind of damage they took, there were scores of replacements and reinforcements just over the horizon. This was a vast, ocean-crossing killing machine, hell-bent on reaching its final destination, Tokyo. In 1944, the massive, irresistible American armada was grinding island by island, an enormous buzzsaw whose blades ripped closer and closer to the Japanese homeland. But this was not the first time Japan found itself with a massive, irresistible force darkening her doorway. In many ways, this is really history repeating itself. And last time around, Japan's response was one of the greatest go-fuck-yourselves of all time. The first time around, it was Kublai Khan and his horde of bloodthirsty Mongol warriors. 
So we touched on this briefly in story mode back in the pilot, but it really deserves a more complete account because how they came to this moment is just a wonderful encapsulation of what would go on to shape Japan's worldview. Back in the year 1274, while busy concentrating his wrath on the Chinese dynasties, the Khan had demanded honor and servitude from the Japanese shoguns, who had all recently fallen under the same banner. The Japanese reply came back stuffed in a blood-leaking basket, the severed heads of Kublai's envoys. The Khan was naturally furious. He was like, hey, extreme brutality is my thing. He would not let the Japanese out-Mongol the Mongols. So he launches his first expedition. And numbers are always fuzzy this far back in history, but it's said to be something like a fleet of a thousand ships carrying 40,000 warriors. Those are massive numbers for this time. They actually did manage to land at Hakata Bay and clashed with a small force of samurai, quickly overwhelming them with relentless cavalry charges and mounted archers, thick clouds of poison-tipped arrows and Chinese firebombs, basically iron balls packed with explosive gunpowder, was proof that the Mongols were not fucking around. Samurai at this time were used to charging into a pitched battle and challenging opposing warriors into single combat. This fierce, fast-paced, chaotic, horse-mounted horror show with explosions was like nothing they had ever seen. The samurai quickly fell back in terror, only to be given a moment of respite as the Mongols turned and headed back to their own ships. The Mongols realized that slaughtering these shiny, sword-wielding islanders, who were at this point cowering behind their defenses, was not going to be all that much of an issue. So, they legged it back to the ships for more ammo and the rest of their men, you know, a quick hold my beer while I go grab some more stuff to kill you with moment. But that's when fate intervened. As the story goes, the skies suddenly darkened and a massive typhoon swooped down, laying waste to the Mongol fleet at anchor. It was a true and utter miracle. You could probably imagine that Kublai was pissed. Enraged, furious, wrathful, those might be better adjectives. This little island has the audacity to not only spurn my benevolent and generous offer to be bloodlessly absorbed into my kingdom, but they have the shamelessness to murder my envoys? Then, just as I'm about to exact revenge, I'm thwarted by a goddamn storm? Still busy with the conquest of China, the Khan vowed that these transgressions would not go unpunished. The Mongols are known to this day as probably the most fearsome, brutal, efficient, and successful warriors of all time, and in the late 1200s, they were in their absolute heyday. Not to go too deeply into this, mainly because Dan Carlin has pretty much covered every last bit of this in the best possible detail you could ever ask for, um, go check out his Wrath of Khan series, it's definitely worth a listen. But the Mongols would go on to destroy the massive fortress cities of China. They would crush their dynasties. They would lay waste to the great Muslim world. They would effortlessly tear through the Western-style castles and knights of Georgia and Russia. They were irresistible. And although full of warriors and samurai, the Japanese would have been no match for the united and overwhelming Mongolian horde, especially for what Kublai Khan had in mind. Kublai specialized on turning rival forces against one another, and in the loosely-knit, feudally-aligned, fragmented, clan-based Japanese society of the time, this was right in his swing zone. He was planning to turn the Japanese island into a blood-soaked orgy of torture porn and retribution. Yet another example of what happens to those who defy him. No more envoys, no more terms, this would be conquest Mongol-style. Full and total slaughter. And based on how the Japanese felt about surrender anyway, it is easy to see how this proud warrior culture would have fought to the bitter, and I mean bitter, end. Now, again, numbers from this era are always hazy, but it's said that in 1281, 
Kublai's forces returned to Hakata Bay with something like 140,000 warriors carried on 4,000 ships. And I've heard estimates all the way up to 200,000, which is just, just crazy. But either way, if this is even close to the truth, the next time any invasion force would hit numbers like this would be on June 6, 1944, the Allied invasion of Fortress Europe. Kublai takes years to amass this gigantic army and finally sets sail to take Japan once and for all. Now, we know what happens next. This is where we pick up with the legend of the divine wind. A second, earth-shattering typhoon strikes the Mongol landing fleet for two straight days, sending the ships to the bottom and dooming the Mongol invasion for good. This double miracle of biblical proportion destroys the Khan's plans for vengeance, and Japan gets away with giving the ultimate middle finger to the most feared warlord of all time. It was a miracle that, had it not happened, it is very easy to see an outcome that ends in total Japanese annihilation. I mean, why not? The Mongols had done it to everybody else. This event reinforced the Japanese belief that they were a people chosen by God. That divine protection would grant them immunity from any outside aggressors. As these real events slowly turned into legend and intertwined with the Shinto religion, it became a tentpole for the Japanese cultural consciousness. But in 1945, the belief that they were invincible to invasion, that their righteous gods held their island in the palm of their hand, well, that would be put to the test by an enemy with destructive power that Kublai Khan never even dreamed of. Now, about 700 years later, Japan found itself facing the greatest, most technologically advanced, lethally efficient destructive force ever seen. The new American Navy had been injected with oceans of money and materials since its feeble pre-war days. It had slowly perfected its abilities over hard years of war experience and was now, much in the spirit of Kublai Khan, finally rolling up its sleeves in order to exact terrible vengeance for the crimes committed at Pearl Harbor. And it was going to take a lot more than typhoons to stop it. Late May 1945 the full might of Task Force 58 cracks its knuckles, rolls up its sleeves, and prepares to pound the shit out of a little island called Okinawa. This would be remembered as the Tetsu no Ame, or the Typhoon of Steel. One step closer, one more airfield putting B-29s in range of Tokyo itself. But to the Japanese, Okinawa was different. This was not just some land taken in conquest, liberated or absorbed into Japanese territory during their oceanic blitzkrieg of the previous five years. Okinawa was considered true Japanese soil. It was a home island, one of the Allies' last stops before Japan itself. The Japanese had been watching this slow yet inevitable American juggernaut grind closer and closer, like an anaconda squeezing the life out of its victim, making eye contacts as the bones break in its vice grip. It was now coming to their last gasp. Much like how Stalingrad was more important simply because of the name, regardless of the strategic importance, the Japanese were willing to go to the most extreme lengths to defend their homeland. Tokyo, late April. The wail of air raid sirens could be heard even through the concrete shelter adjacent to the Imperial throne room. Koshiro Oikawa, the naval minister, watches pensively as the Emperor reads over the kamikaze attack plan to be launched in defense of Okinawa. He steals a glance at his Emperor, now looking at a direct descendant of the Supreme Goddess Amaratsu, the embodiment of godliness in human form. Well, that's what the Shinto beliefs said anyway. Slight frame, thin wrists, the Emperor strains his eyes, 
squinting to read through his round spectacles. As his majesty finishes, Oikawa is quick to avert his gaze from the divine countenance. In his high, nasal voice, the emperor speaks. Two thousand aircraft? Is that all? There will be another fifteen hundred aircraft from the army, answers Oikawa. Operation Kikasui coordinated the biggest kamikaze raid of all time, a full-scale attack as never seen before, throwing into the sky pretty much anything and everything the Japanese had left. After a pause, the emperor poses a question that would push the Japanese to an even further extreme. He asks, What about the Navy? Have we no ships? What about the Navy? You know, this feels a little bit like that moment in the bunker during the fall of Berlin, when Hitler, in one of his unhinged rages, screams about committing some panzer divisions that don't exist into some glorious breakout action. Well, it's not quite at that level, but the Japanese Navy is utterly shattered at this point in the war. To catch you up, here is a relatively succinct tactical answer to that question. The Japanese certainly did come out of the gates roaring, undefeated in the first six months of conquest in earnest, but that first hugely decisive defeat, the disaster at Midway, it put them on their heels, setting the tone for what was to come. They lost four fleet carriers in that battle alone. This forced the Japanese battleships back into their former role as the main combatants in order to preserve the remaining carriers for decisive actions. But those two dwindled rapidly. At Guadalcanal, the battleship Kirishima engaged in one of the only true battleship duels in World War II. She scored critical hits on the battleship South Dakota, nearly putting her down, but was then blasted to the bottom at point-blank range by the unseen USS Washington. Ship to ship, these battleships could still do some damage, but this type of battle was just about extinct. It would be the great carrier-versus-carrier engagements that would seal Japan's fate. The Battle of the Philippine Sea would crush once and for all Japan's ability to conduct carrier actions of any scale. The battle in the air would be known as the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. The Japanese launched 750 aircraft and lost all of about 100. That's 650 irreplaceable planes and pilots, all shot down in one afternoon. The U.S. had put up 900 carrier-borne aircraft and lost just 123. Not only that, out of the five massive fleet carriers Japan committed to the fight, three, the Taiho, Shokaku, and Hiyu, were all sunk. Two were sunk by submarine-launched torpedoes and the others from the air. Now, Let's really let that sink in. When you lose one of these fleet carriers, these ships that carry over 100 planes and maybe 3,000 sailors, you lose your platform for mobile airstrikes. And most of all, you lose every one of your planes. The Japanese spent the full year pouring every bit of their dwindling resources into making more aircraft, and the U.S. knocked them out in just a few hours' time. With Japan down to its very last fully trained seasoned veterans, this battle slaughtered their hopes of mounting a worthy counter to their highly skilled, highly experienced enemy. This is one major factor that precipitated the kamikaze strategy. They didn't have pilots who could hang with the Americans anymore, let alone win a dogfight and still plant a bomb. The best they could do was train these green boys just enough to get off the ground and point their nose into an enemy aircraft carrier. Only one U.S. battleship was damaged, and not a single one was sunk. Most of the aircraft losses were due to pilots running out of fuel on the way back from their carriers, but not due to the enemy. The infamous quote from one Navy pilot was, Boy, it was just like a good old turkey shoot down home. You could see pictures of one elated airman, Alexander Jurasu, having just landed, flight goggles still on his head, counting kills on both hands with a huge grin across his face. 
On that clear June afternoon, the Chicago native came roaring out of the sun in his Hellcat and managed to take down six enemies in just eight minutes. And he only used 360 rounds to do it. He would win a Navy Cross for his actions. Better tactics, better training, technology, raw materials, ship and aircraft design, America's Navy had finally come of age. And this was a battle from which the Japanese would never recover. The third of the monster Yamato-class battleships called Shinano was still under construction when many of these carrier losses took place. So, as carrier losses mounted and strategies shifted to an air war, they tried converting Shinano into a kind of battleship-carrier hybrid. But there was yet another thing the Japanese Navy had to fear— maybe even more than death from above, that sneaky creeping killer beneath the waves. Shinano did not last 24 hours at sea. She was sunk by a lone submarine, the USS Archerfish. Archerfish fired six torpedoes without ever being detected, and it took only one, which hit the secret cargo load of Oka flying bombs to trigger the tons of explosives and blow Shinano to smithereens. We'll get into the Oka flying bombs soon enough. With the incredible cost and value of these ships, the level of national pride tied to them, the sheer amount of men lost in a single sinking, that irreplaceable aura of invincibility, when shattered by one single lowly submarine, it was true and utter devastation. No matter how formidable these giant ships were, they were still vulnerable to the most terrible menace of the sea, the marine torpedo. So, now left with little other choice, these battleships were forced into fights that they were ill-equipped for, Few planes to provide air cover, less carriers to launch them from, it was virtually impossible to travel without running into U.S. subs, scout planes, or radar pickets. The Battle of Leyte Gulf would be the stage for the final slaughter of these once great and powerful behemoths. Although battleship Musashi, who we met earlier, was not quite her big sister Yamato, she still boasted more armor and punching power than any American vessel. But alas, she would never get that ship-to-ship -ship showdown for which she was designed. Stung by something like 19 torpedoes and 17 bomb strikes, she managed to escape the initial beating, only to slowly slip beneath the waves along with her captain, Toshihira Inoguchi, on the 25th of October. I mention Inoguchi because his brother was actually head of the kamikaze branch of the Naval Air Force all the way up until the final days of the war. His classic book, Divine Wind, was a huge, truly indispensable source of information for this podcast and really all kamikaze studies since. This ugly death by a thousand cuts was something that the designers and naval strategists who created these leviathans did not count on. In a fair ship-to-ship -ship battle, these super battleships were unmatched, but Japan had undercut conventional naval strategy by kicking off the Pacific War with attack via aircraft carrier. By this point, the strategic shift was complete and all-encompassing. The very next day, just a few miles south at Suryago Strait, Battleships Yamashiro and Fuso were both swarmed and crippled by U.S. carrier-borne torpedo bombers, then finished off by battleships. The U.S. had mastered the Japanese fast carrier attack and was using their strategy to prove that air power could best the once-vaunted battleship. So, back to the little concrete bunker next to the Imperial Palace, the air raid sirens wailing. What about the Navy? asks the Emperor. I compare this to the Hitler in the bunker moment where he's screaming, Fell my panzer divisions! Or whatever imaginary division he's inventing, and everyone in the room knows that it just doesn't exist and that he's losing his damn mind. That moment reflects the utter manic futility, that loss of control, and the refusal to see reality. Now, the Emperor didn't have military control like Hitler, but his question did carry an enormous amount of power. 
When taken literally, perhaps it reveals how little he knew and understood of the actual military situation, or maybe how in the dark he was really kept. If he meant it rhetorically, that can certainly sound like a challenge. Regardless of how he actually meant it or what he knew or understood, what it did for sure was sting the soul of these extremely proud Japanese naval warriors. They all had collective recurring nightmares about the utter humiliation of the German naval surrender at the end of World War I. That was a shame that they could not abide. Now they felt that they had been called out by their own emperor. The Air Force is doing everything they possibly could, including literal suicide attacks. The defenders of Iwo Jima and Okinawa are showing loyalty worthy of their samurai forebears. Where is the Navy? What that question did was seal the fate of the Yamato. Now, it is extremely important to note, and I implore you to keep this in your mind as you listen to this tragedy unfold, the Japanese never believed that they would surrender. It was just not part of their warfighting psyche. They may have envisioned the remaining fleet being sunk at anchor by the American carriers, but never the humiliating surrender of the Imperial German Navy. Most knew that the war was lost, that the Navy had not existed as an actual fighting force since the Marianas. But it was simply too dangerous to say this openly. This was not a fact that could be acknowledged. The only reason the Navy was trying to preserve the remaining ships was to be used against the final assault on Japan, that inevitable crescendo that everyone on both sides believed in their hearts was coming. That was the only way this thing was going to end. So, most admirals, commanders, all the way down to the mothers of the kamikazes, as their cities were scorched to ash and their sons made to make the ultimate sacrifice, they felt it was far better to go out with one last glorious bonsai charge. This is where all those old legends and stories come back into play. All those layers of cultural heritage, the ghost of Musashi and Kunsunoki Masashige, the thought of Kublai Khan's armada smashed upon the shore. It began to conjure up new visions of fantastic victory against all odds. And before you say it, no. They weren't crazy. Crazy to believe that there was hope of victory? Yes, but not crazy to have hope. The Germans, even while Berlin was being completely surrounded, some still held out hope that Hitler had one last Wunderwaffen up his sleeve, some miracle bomb or superweapon to level London or Moscow or Washington. Countless interviews with POWs and civilians, even when the war was at its worst moment, reflected this vain hope. Promises of some great and terrible war-changing superweapon were often mainstay propaganda tools for doomed nations. Hope like this is not uncommon. Belief in deliverance by a higher power, it seems to take form when one can't or one refuses to come face to face with reality. And at this stage, the Japanese also had a very different definition of victory. As the emperor's sharp words reverberated through the naval staff, the mood became even more desperate, now truly unhinged. The ultra-nationalist fight-to-the-death faction stepped up their rhetoric, devolving the war rooms into impassioned shouting matches, calling for a wild swinging charge aimed at the enemy's jugular. What would we have done in the olden times? Evoke the spirit of Kunsunoki at Minotagawa or Yamamoto at Pearl Harbor. A show of spirit. Evoke the memory of our glorious ancestors, of the Yamato people. The gods will come to our aid. For these modern samurai, it was a hard sentiment to argue with. Many of them felt destined to follow in the footsteps of their reverend 15th century lineage. When cornered, doomed samurai could find an honorable end by throwing themselves into the hopeless fray. Now, four centuries later, they are asking to do it with the fate of Japan's survival. The navy also felt intense pressure from the army. 
They had been bitching that the impudent Yankees were taunting their impotency, left to rape and pillage their sacred soil, unchallenged by the remaining naval power. They were furious. They felt abandoned, left to do all the gruesome fighting, as at Saipan and Guam and Iwo Jima. These island-sized last stands eventually fell on the shoulders of the army alone. Led by zealots like Takehiro Ohinishi, the father of the kamikaze, a man who we'll get to know quite well in the coming episodes, Japan was already engaging in large-scale suicide missions. The kamikaze attacks that were designed to break the Okinawa landings would be the largest in history, but they were also meant to inspire every Japanese soldier and civilian to fight and die by their example. They would spark the new divine wind, what had saved them from the Mongol invasion. It was their duty to bring this to bear now. It was meant to prime their nation for the inevitable defense of their homeland. And with these special attacks already an approved military strategy, the door was now open to a whole new world of extremes. And the Navy should be there. They must. They themselves felt the responsibility and the duty. And then again, there was that crazy, inexplicable thing. Hope. In their dwindling deck of cards, they still held the biggest battleship ever built. Untested in real battle, it was like a giant tiger pacing in its cage. A shimmering vision began to dance in front of their eyes. The glorious final sortie, marshalling all remaining strength, finally setting loose the Amato, picturing her emerging from the murky pre-dawn gloom, striking forth like a divine thunderbolt, her 18-inch guns blazing, slaughtering the shocked and helpless American transports, those cowardly, panicked Yankees firing blindly at each other in hysterics, burning ships littering the sea. What a glorious way to die. The final bonsai. Then, after carving out an epic swath of destruction, they would crash the Yamato onto the beach and allow her cannons to join the chorus of the coastal battery. All sailors would scurry off the great hulking ship as she put up her barrage and join the island defenders in their battle to the death, thus setting off the massive all-out counterattack on land, with which they would throw the invaders back into the sea at bayonet point. Surely, with this, they would shock the gutless Americans into aborting their landings for good. The decision to put this fantastical plan into actual effect was made by Admiral Kami and Toyota during a closed-door marathon session over copious amounts of sake, of which there is no official transcript, but I would love to hear what they were going through. When briefed by Ohinishi, Vice Admiral Ito and Rear Admiral Morishita, Captain of the Yamato, and their staff officers, they could not help but let their jaws drop. Usually so thorough and detail-oriented, this lone page of orders was just one short paragraph, and to these professionals, it read more like a comic dreamt up by a ten-year-old. Operation Tenichi, which translates to Heaven Number 1, was ordered on April 6th and went something like this. Flagship Yamato plus eight destroyers are to attack Okinawa landing ships. After inflicting maximum punishment, Yamato is to be beached, using her main guns to aid the defense. Surplus crew will join the garrison ashore. Now, that was the craziest shit any of them had ever heard. And I just love them using the phrase maximum punishment in an official naval order. It's just, it's just so cinematic. Translating this into actual action was almost insulting. First, they would have to make the 350-mile dash to Kyushu to Okinawa. That's 350 miles without air cover, through sub-infested waters, under the watchful eye of U.S. radar pickets and constant B-29 scout squadrons. Much of this trip would be unavoidable daytime travel, in which they would be giant dream targets for the waiting swarms of U.S. aircraft. So even just getting to Okinawa was pretty much a joke. Then once they somehow got there, they'd have to get through the entirety of Task Force 58 in order to target the beaches. 
And once they got in range, how many ships could they possibly sink? 10, 20, 50 against a fleet of hundreds? Already 100,000 U.S. Marines were on the shores, consolidating control of the southern part of the island. Could Yamato really somehow be their savior? Then there were the logistical questions about fuel and supplies. All of their precious remaining fuel was being used for ships tasked with feeding and protecting the main island. The situation was so dire that fueling the giant Yamato and her escorts for a mission like this would sap their reserves and leave the rest of the navy with barely enough to keep the lights on. We still have a long war to fight, they cried. How is the rest of the navy to continue to operate after this? Ohinishi's clear, cold voice stops the room dead. Fuel for a return trip is of no concern. Supply will only be given for a one-way voyage. This is a toko operation. A toko operation, or a special operation, that was the euphemism for a kamikaze attack. This was the final nail in the coffin. Now there would be no mistaking the intent of this mission. The Yamato, her eight destroyer escorts, and the more than 5,000 souls who crewed them were not meant to come home. End of story. This is a suicide mission, Eastern style. In the pilot, we discussed Western versus Eastern suicide missions, and I used this analogy. In the Eastern suicide mission, you are the bullet. The bullet does not come home. In the more fanatical facets of the Imperial Japanese war machine, it was believed that Toko warriors were capable of fighting more fiercely and more intensely. By being untethered from their earthly concerns, they were supposedly capable of greater self-sacrifice, and in this post-mortal state, no normal living man could stand up to their fury. This was somewhat rooted in Buddhist legends about the purity and supremacy of Japanese warriors, which was then regurgitated in the half-digested maxim that Japanese spirit would ultimately triumph over American materialism. They believed that sacrifice reinforced this spirit and in turn would lead them to victory, to overcome overwhelming odds. The shades of the heroic dead, backed by sympathetic gods, would amass together for a miracle counterattack akin to the typhoons that saved Japan from the Mongols. A dramatic gesture, no matter how futile, could not fail to elicit divine aid. Captain Morishita, Ito, and the admirals now saw their fate fully revealed. I cannot possibly imagine what this must have felt like, the gravity of it, because it's no longer just you and your Zero making that harrowing final decision to crash dive into an enemy carrier. That ultimate choice made in the heat of combat, target acquired, you set your teeth, visions of your wife and your father and your daughter flash through your memory, your heart floods with adrenaline, you grip the throttle and dive into eternity. That is a huge, mind-breaking and terrifying choice, but... This is now on a grand scale. Carrying out this command would take thousands of lives along with you. Kamikaze had now graduated to an even greater, unthinkable level of cost and commitment. Bushido Code loved a flamboyant gesture, but I wonder if they ever had this in mind. One logistics officer breaks the silence of men pondering their own demise. In an effort to pull some realism into the moment, he says, An operation of this scale would take months to plan. But again, he's cut off. Ohinishi nods to his aide, who snaps a bow and presents another printed transcript. These are the recommendations. I expect the execution of which shall be immediate. The Yamato, the flagship of the Imperial Japanese Navy, the greatest battleship ever built, carrying the ancient and mythical soul of Japan as her namesake, 
would set sail on her doomed kamikaze mission just three days later. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll stay tuned for episode three, where we will dive into, no pun intended, some of the really dark stuff. We'll get into the history of Japanese suicidal fanaticism going back to ancient times and how it primed this modern nation for this level of self-sacrifice. We'll also explore what it meant to be kamikaze. Who were these pilots? How and why was this tactic ever allowed to take hold? What goes on in a man's head and heart when he realizes his mission is to die? Then, the big finish, we will climb on board the Yamato as her suicide mission sends her into an ocean of danger and death, the part that I think we've all been waiting for. From all of us here at the War Daddy Podcast, (laughs) well, uh, who am I kidding? It's just me strung out on caffeine, wrapped in my grandfather's M65 jacket, babbling hysterically about the bravery of long dead men. Well, anyway, there are many goals for this podcast, and uh, one of which is to start a conversation. I hope this really does shed new light on things you may have known about, but maybe now you have a new chance to see it from a different angle or a different POV. Take a peek at wardaddypodcast.com. I'll be posting a whole lot of sources, some great books, all the research that went into this. There's some excellent reads, so they'll all be there. I'm clearly standing on the shoulders of geniuses. People have spent their entire lives researching these things. So, you know, I don't make any of this shit up, and it's really, really great, great stuff to read. So I'll, I'll list all that stuff on there so you can go even deeper if you want to. Also, follow the Instagram handle. Uh, the War Daddy Podcast is on Instagram, so I'll be posting all kinds of um, photos and images of the exact things that we're talking about here to hopefully further spark your imagination. Um, in this episode, we talked about Virtue, Alexander Virtue, the guy who had, uh, you know, all, I think it was what, six kills in eight minutes at the Battle of uh, the uh, Marianas Turkey Shoot. There's that picture that I'm talking about with him counting his kills on his hands. You know, it's images like that that just bring you closer to the material. So I'll be posting all that kind of stuff there. You can check that out. Also, on the website, if you've got questions, if you want to hear specific things, um, you know, if I screw something up, which is more than inevitable, especially the uh, least of which the uh, Japanese names, which I do a really probably terrible, terrible job of doing that. Hit me up on there. I, I'm, you know, in the final episode, I'm going to try and take all these questions into account. All right, enough disclaimers. I can only hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes as much as I love making them. Please stay tuned for the continuation of this story and the grand finale in the final episode, the thing I've been waiting and waiting to do. So that's enough for now from the War Daddy Podcast. Cheers till next time.